0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marcia Brownley. The Artemis community understands that as hunters and anglers, we have a responsibility to actively engage in the conservation of our lands, waters, and wildlife. With that in mind, each year the Artemis Podcast delves into a special series focusing on a specific conservation issue. Our goal is to dig into the complexity, deepen our understanding, and help spur conversation. This year, our series is about climate change. If we all take a minute to think about our time in the woods and on the water, if we take time to think about our experience, we can't deny that we are seeing drastic changes. Changes in temperature, changes in water levels, changes in habitat quality, and changes in the number and distribution of game. We are seeing changes in our hunting and fishing seasons, and it's impacting us and our communities. In this series, we talk to scientists, conservationists, and leaders from across the country and ask them questions related to climate change to deepen our understanding of what's happening, what's being done about it, and where we can contribute. We're looking forward to digging in, and we thank you for joining us for the Artemis Climate Series. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Artemis Climate Series podcast. Our co-host today is Becca Aceto. Hi, Becca. Good morning, Marsha. It's been a while. How's your hunting season gone?
1: You know, I've been so busy um, between traveling in November and just work and house stuff. And it gets dark at five. So I feel like I'm all gung-ho to go hunt with my dog after work and it's dark. So actually today is a Friday. So after this podcast, I'm going to grab my shotgun, grab him and go see if we can find some birds.
0: Nice. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, I feel like the hunting season this year just went by in a blink and I didn't get out nearly as much as I wanted to as well. It was just super busy. Did you do much big game?
1: You know, I did not. I've talked to a lot of friends about this. I just have this sort of lack of motivation this year to big game hunt. I don't know if it was because it was so warm. Um, Yeah, it was crazy. I guess our guest is from Florida. So, relatively speaking, it was very warm (laughs) this year during our big game season. Um, And I love hunting in snow. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a really great season um, and it was snowy the whole time. And it's just so much fun to track the animals and be out there in a winter wonderland in October. But Idaho's over-the-counter deer season is only two weeks long. So if you don't have the motivation in those two weeks, you're kind of uh, you got to wait till the next year. But yeah. I've been having a great bird season with the dog. So I've, awesome. I kind of, Take that over big game, I think, at least while he's still young,
0: because um, he mm-hmm. can get out there and cover miles. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, I will bring our guest into the conversation. Our guest today is Lindsay Cross joining us from Florida. Hi, Lindsay.
2: Hi. So good to be with you, Marcia and Becca.
0: Yeah, really excited to talk to you. Um, and it's funny because I was listening to the podcast from our first episode of the climate series, which aired. Um, Uh, like a week or two after and in listening to it I was talking about how cold it was in Montana but on the day it actually posted it was like mid-60s and (laughs) it's just (laughs) the weather has been crazy and yeah we haven't yeah it's it's just been a really prolonged warm um season and I'm with you Becca there's it's um there's just no snow to track big game in and so I went antelope hunting but didn't really get out much uh to do Deer hunting beyond that, and it was just a very strange season. Yeah, Yeah. so I I was looking
2: at something today that said that Denver has not received any snow yet, and this is the first December where they haven't had snow yet. But yet, Hawaii may be having a snowstorm. So
0: weather (laughs) is crazy right now. Weather continues to be crazy, right? Right? You know, I feel like this whole year um, has been off for us with just a, a. really unseasonably dry summer with low water. And it's just been, it just continues to be crazy, which is why we're doing this podcast series. Come on. (laughs) It's perfect. Uh, Lindsay, tell us a little bit about who you are.
2: Yeah. So um, I'm a conservationist at heart. I work on water and land policy in the state of Florida. And I am passionate about protecting our natural environment cleaning up our water, making sure that we have adequate habitat for fish and wildlife species, but really that we're providing those habitats so that people can get outside and reconnect with nature, spend time, whether it's hunting or fishing or just going for a short nature walk with their family. Um, I think it's so important that we have natural areas to recreate in and that we're getting more people back outside of nature.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I would love to hear a little bit more about why that's why you think that's so important.
2: Yeah. So I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up outside of Detroit, which is, you know, not really hey. a Mecca of <laughs> not a Mecca of outdoor areas, but Michigan actually has some of the most spectacular natural areas of, you know, of any state in the, in the country. And I spent a lot of time outside. I was fortunate that we lived in some areas with, you know, small preservation areas behind our house with, you know, a little Creek when you're, when you're young, you don't need a lot of space, but just having access to, you know, a small preservation area behind my house where my brother and I would go explore and get together with our neighbor friends, like that's just how we would spend our time. We would go outside. We would play baseball, or you know, we would ice skate on these little creeks or ponds in the in the winter. I think that's probably why I have such poor circulation of my feet and my fingers is from yeah. <laughs> getting getting frostbite so many times, you know, <laughs> ice skating on those those frozen Michigan lakes. But you know, I just always loved being outside, and have been able to create a career where I'm working to protect those type of areas that I love and make it more accessible for other people to have those experiences too.
0: That's wonderful. I don't know if, if we talked about this, but I'm from Michigan as well. And, and yeah, one of the things I agree, one of the things that I mean, Michigan has some amazing natural areas um, and one of the things they do really well is have those local preserves and those local state parks. Um, so even, uh, large suburban areas will often have a beautiful park that you can walk around in. Um,
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what took you to Florida? Well, I, so I spent my entire childhood
2: in Michigan. My parents exposed me to downhill skiing when I was in high school and we don't, in Michigan, we don't have any mountains. We do have some hills and yep. we've actually converted some, you know, old landfills <laughs> yep. into, into ski hills in the metro Detroit area. But I I just fell in love with that. Um, I knew that I wanted to go to school for environmental science. And so I narrowed my search to schools that had um, a good environmental science program and also were close to great skiing. So mm. I actually went out to Fort Collins, Colorado, and got my bachelor's at Colorado State University and um, was fortunate to have a roommate whose parents owned a house in the Keystone Breckenridge area. So I would go spend holidays with her and her family. You know, back then you could get a annual ski pass for $250, which is, you know, unheard of. You get four people four people to get a, they called it a four pack. And so you'd get four people. It was a thousand dollars. So it came out to $250 a person. So I spent a lot of time when I was in college skiing, you know, Breckenridge and Keystone and a basin. Those are some of my favorites. And then after college, I moved to the Tampa Bay area in Florida. It's a place that I also had a strong connection to from my childhood uh, my aunt and uncle and two cousins lived in the area. Um, my grandparents ended up retiring to kind of the Central Florida area, and so we would spend spring break and holidays visiting my family there. Um, I actually did my my senior trip to Clearwater Beach, and didn't realize that in a you know a couple short years I'd be making my home there. Um, mm. But I loved the you know, being outside on the water and love the environment here in Florida. So it was a a natural fit for me to move here after college. And I've been here for 20 years now.
0: It's beautiful. I was, I was curious when you started about where you were going with skiing in Florida, Uh (laughs) Uh, but I, I love the journey. I love the journey that it took you on. That's fantastic.
2: Yeah. So it's, it's still important for me to get back to the mountains because There's something that's just so magical that feeds your soul about being out in the mountains, but, you know, having Tampa Bay five blocks from my house, you know, Mm -hmm. and having it so accessible, you just, you just can't beat that.
0: It's amazing. Uh, So one of the things that we're, well, we're going to talk about a bunch of things um, specific to Florida and conservation and climate change today. Um, But one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you is that in the hunters and anglers guide um, to climate solutions that the NWF outdoors published recently, we break down the report into uh, and focus on specific ecosystems and Mm -hmm. Florida is, Uh, is one of the areas that we look at closely, um, because they have so many ecosystems um, in the area that are areas of focus. And so I would love if you could tell us just a little bit of kind of lay the groundwork for us about Florida and some of your favorite places. And if you could paint a picture of what it's like for us, that would be amazing.
2: Yeah, I'd love to do that. So Florida has so many unique ecosystems. You know, we think of Florida, probably most people in the US and um, worldwide, you think of the beaches. Of course, we have amazing beaches. And people probably think of Disney World and some of the theme Mm -hmm. parks. But there's so many hidden gems in Florida and natural places. We've got a population of around 22 million people. So it's, it's surprising that we do have as many undisturbed and natural parts of our state. Um, Because I live in the Tampa Bay area, one of my favorite places to explore is an area called Weedon Island Preserve. And this is a mixture of different saltwater wetland species. So mangroves and salt marshes and a little known habitat called a saltern or a salt barren, which is a place that is dry most of the time except on high tides and so water will come in during the high tide it'll bring a lot of fish with it and then as the water starts to recede or you know it starts to evaporate some of these fish get caught in this this higher drier area and at certain times of the year it becomes like a feeding frenzy for some of our wading birds like mm-hmm. ibis and um, different heron species And it creates this really um, salty soils. And there's only certain types of um, plants that can survive there, these different salt warts, that if you snap a piece of the plant off and, you know, take a bite, it's, you can taste the salt in there and you, you can smell it. There's just this this brackish kind of humic smell Um, at low tide when you're in the mangroves. This is an area with so much production where you've got mangroves that are dropping their leaves and they're decomposing and creating this really thick, dark, rich um, soil. And so sometimes you you smell that, you know, and it can be kind of an off-putting smell, but there's, um this carbon reducing anaerobic processes, so the acronym is crap, and <laughs> some people think <laughs> that's a little bit what it smells like, so if you go at low tide in some of these areas, like you you know you just notice it, you know you can you can see the slow movement of water, you smell you know really life just happening, the decomposition, but you know that that's happening to feed. You know the existing mangroves, um, and because we have this tidal cycle, it's not as pronounced in the Tampa Bay area as it is in, you know, some parts in the southeastern U.S. But but certainly you have your high tides and your low tides, and so during the low tide, you see these these mud flats that can be exposed. That's a place when when the birds come out and you know feed on all the fish or maybe the little worm species. These little invertebrates that are, are living within the, the soil themselves. Um, and then at high tide, you're able to access these places maybe from a kayak or a paddle board. Um, Weedon Island has a whole network of paddling trails that you can get in a canoe or a kayak and go through these mangrove tunnels. So you're completely enveloped with these. These saltwater plants that have these um, root systems. If you think of like skeleton fingers, that's how it kind of looks, these mangrove roots going down into this mucky soil. And they're just filled with birds. You'll see fish swimming around. And there's also these little creatures called mangrove crabs, and they they have kind of a hard box shape um, size to them. They're no bigger than um you know about maybe about 2 inches across and there are these dark black mangrove crabs and you'll see them just like skittering up and down the the root structure and if you're going under the mangroves you may be unfortunate enough to have one of them fall into your <laughs> canoe or your kayak and so <laughs> you know you'll hear people gasp when when they have this little mangrove crab but they're always able to you know scamper up and and get out of the the canoe, and I feel it's like
0: Marsha
1: so... just did that gasp perfectly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if I admit, he fell on my head, not into the canoe. <laughs> it was uh, like down my the back of my neck. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it's
2: it's so much fun for me to take people on these these mangrove tunnels because it's something so unlike you'll experience any place else, and so that's one of my favorite experiences and. You know, coming from out from the tunnel, out into the Greater Tampa Bay ecosystem, you'll see places where you've got fish jumping, like mullet jumping all over the place. Um, you can catch stingrays and and horseshoe crabs that are swimming down on the bottom, and you know, just seagrass everywhere, teeming with life. So mm. that's that's one of my favorite places.
0: That's sounds magical, and. You described it so beautifully. Thank you for taking You're
2: welcome. Time. You're welcome.
0: Uh, it sounds like it's a place where you spend a fair amount of time. Is there a story of <laughs> maybe a crab falling on your head? Or <laughs>
2: You know, it, it is a place where I've spent a lot of time. Um, I used to be the president of a nonprofit called the Friends of Wienan Island, and we exist to help support education and restoration work at the preserve. Um, the preserve itself is about 3,200 acres and it's right in the middle of St. Petersburg and more people know about it now, but it still is this, this hidden jewel that, you know, is just a couple miles from downtown, um, really close to a bridge taking you over to Tampa, which is another bustling metropolitan area, but you've got this you know, this area that has, has not changed too much in the past couple centuries. And so being able to be part of that organization has been really rewarding for me. Um, I'm also a trail runner, and that's something that is, is harder to find in Florida and the Tampa Bay areas, you know, good dirt trails, especially, you know, we don't have much elevation here. So We make up for that with heat and humidity (laughs) and, you know, in some places, really sandy soils like the sugar sand areas, which is makes for challenging running. Um, Mm -hmm. But there is a network of trails out at Wienan Island and informally, a group of friends and I would go out on Tuesday nights and we do about a five mile route. Um, And I thought, you know, how cool would it be to do a trail run here? And get other people out here. So when I became president of this of this organization, that was one of the first things I did. And you know, the first year, trying to convince some of the people who'd been on the board that you know this was a good idea and people would be excited about it, like I kind of had to drag them along. Um, but we sold out. Uh, we started small, but we sold out the first year, and. It was just such a spectacular event, and to see people, you know, finish the race and say like, "I I never knew this place existed, and I'm going to take my kids here, and I'm going to bring my family here," like I'm so grateful that you, you know, that I had the chance to experience this. Um, there's a boardwalk system that goes through the mangrove, so if you don't want to actually be down in the mangroves or in your kayak, you can you know, you can walk or run out on these boardwalks and, you know, still be within this, you know, this prehistoric ecosystem. And we would make people run up to the top of this tower and ring a bell. And that was with only about half a mile left. And so people would be, you know, a little bit tired at that point. They're thinking, you know, I'm almost to the end. And then you would make them run up several flights of stairs (laughs) But when you get up there, you see this incredible view of the mangroves of the you know oyster bars that are around that area. Um, you can see to to downtown St. Petersburg and over to Tampa and so it really is worth it so the the proceeds for this race, we were able to fund school trips school field trips for some of our low income um, communities, so we would get young students out to the preserve that their parents really didn't have the resources to bring them out. So we would have an entire day where they would go into the cultural natural history center and learn about the history of it and the native people that lived there. They would get out onto the boardwalks. They would learn about the animals that lived there, the gopher tortoises and the birds, and maybe they would see an armadillo or a snake when they would be outside. And so that was such a rewarding way for us to, you know, first of all, bring people from the community out uh, to be part of the race, but knowing that all the proceeds were going to help um, some of the youth in our community as well.
0: Fantastic. Just such an amazing program to connect uh, people to natural spaces in and, and a really um, like well-rounded way. Every part of that program, it sounds like, was designed for that connection. Pretty yes, cool. absolutely. And um they would host fishing clinics for
2: for kids out there, too, because you know, I think some of us take it for granted that you know we have access to the beach or to fishing or you know, friends with a boat, but not everyone does. and mm-hmm. i um I think for women, especially, if you don't have a family member or um, a close friend, maybe a friend's parent who's inviting you to go fishing or hunting, you're probably not going to fall in love with it. You're not going to be exposed to it. And so sometimes programs through nonprofits or through school groups are the way to, to expose kids to, you know, these incredible things they can experience in nature, whether it's um, hunting or fishing or just going for nature walks.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I want to pull us back a little bit and talk about Florida on a bigger scale and um, bring our conversation around to climate change. So I'm going to ask a very big question, and you can narrow it down however (laughs) is necessary. Yeah. Uh, What conservation challenges is Florida facing right now?
2: Poor water quality and, and water pollution generally, I think, is one of the biggest challenges we have right now you know, our population is increasing so much and many of our cities and towns have been around for, for decades or longer. So we have infrastructure that needs to be replaced. Um, some of our wastewater treatment plants don't clean up water as much as they could anymore. So we have a need to to clean the water more before it's it's discharged into the water. Um, for our our coastal areas, Seagrass is one of the most important species that we have. Um, It supports a whole host of fish and wildlife. It is a critical food source for the manatee and for some of our threatened and endangered sea turtles. We've got green turtles and loggerhead and Kemp's ridleys here in the Tampa Bay area and and around the state. Um, And seagrass is really dependent on having clean and clear water. Because it is a a plant species, it needs sunlight. And so that light has to penetrate all the way down through the water column to get to the seagrass. So it has very specific requirements about um, where it can live. So it can't be too deep because more water means that there's um, more distance that the light has to penetrate. So it has to be within certain depths and it has to be clean enough water There can't be too much wave action because that can physically um, limit the plant's growth. And when we have too much pollution that contains um, nitrogen and phosphorus, those are components of fertilizer. They're also in human and animal waste. Um, That's a, a fertilizer for algae as well. And so when we get too much pollution in the water, it feeds these algae blooms. Which limits the light, so it you know can create actual blankets or mats of algae on the surface that completely you know shuts down that light into the the bottom of the of the water column, or can just make it cloudier and and dirtier, and so we've seen really significant die-offs of seagrass in recent years um, in the Indian River Lagoon, which comprises um, about forty percent of Florida's east coast. And includes seven counties. That area, in the past um, just over a decade, since about 2009, they've lost about 58% of their seagrass. And on the Florida's Gulf Coast, in the Tampa Bay and Sarasota and Charlotte Harbor area, um, we've seen declines on the ores of 15 to 20%. Um, So the total acreages that we've lost are. At least sixty thousand acres of seagrass. Um, and seagrass, a thousand acres of seagrass. Um, studies in Tampa in Sarasota Bay have shown that a thousand acres of seagrass supports fifteen million more fish and crab and other species than bare grass. So, if you're losing tens of thousands of acres, you're losing fish habitat. You're losing food sources for manatees. And we've had a record year for manatee mortalities. We've had over a thousand manatees die this year in 2021. And the majority of that is because manatees are starving to death because there's no seagrass. And some of the seagrass that's remaining is not as healthy, it's not as, as thick and lush. And so Th- this water quality um, crisis is making it so that our tourism-based economy is threatened, we're imperil, we're limiting the habitat and the food for fish and wildlife, and it's it's decreasing our quality of life here in in Florida as well. Um, what climate change is going to do with that is. We know that algae thrives in warm water as well. And so in the winter, when we have cooler weather, sometimes we have a little reprieve from some of these algae blooms if it's cold enough to, to kill the algae off and um, kind of have them go dormant. But when our water warms up, that means that this algae can stick around for even longer. And so it's just increasing the the impact to some of our habitats and and really to the fish and and wildlife that depend upon them. So that's that's one thing that yeah. we're dealing with and so, so getting our water quality under control is is going to be one of the biggest and most important steps that we take.
0: So if I'm understanding correctly, it's this issue that sort of starts with infrastructure, right? With human-made infrastructure. Uh, then, then is just exacerbated by climate change impacts like warming water and warm, and warmer temperatures. Yeah, so our infrastructure is part of it, but also
2: our everyday, you know, practices that we engage in. Um, if we're putting too much fertilizer on our lawns, especially people who live right along the water, um, that fertilizer gets into the water, and it's it's feeding algae. It's not feeding your grass at that point. It's feeding the type of things that we, we don't want in our water. So many communities around the state have enacted fertilizer ordinances where you, you can't apply fertilizer during the rainy season, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to really just limit pollution from getting into our waters first because it's so costly to try and remove it or to remediate algae once it's already in the water. You know, pollution prevention has to be the first step and where we put the the bulk of our efforts, whether it's with um, investments or with
1: technology. I'm curious. So there's obviously a lot of factors going into this. Have you seen, so, so there was a big manatee die off this year in Florida. Have you seen that or anything similar to that as being sort of a unifying factor where like before, you know, you have people who are pushing for changes in the way that things are happening in order to help, um, you know, help the ecosystem and help the wildlife. But, you know, there's always going to be folks that um, struggle with change or struggle to adapt um, in order to help progress. So has them, have manatees dying been sort of a wake-up call for a wider group of people, or do you still see a lot of pushback.
2: Both, and and that's a great question, Becca. Um, manatees are are beloved here in our state, and there's places where, you know, a large part of their economy is based on people being able to um, paddle with manatees and and view them. Um, some of our spring systems. Are where manatees go to spend the winter, because even though manatees are these these large animals, they don't have a lot of fat, so they actually have to be in warm water so when the temperatures in the bay or the Gulf of Mexico get down into um the the sixties and and maybe even colder, that's too cold for manatees, and they can actually die when the water is too cold so they move into areas that have warmer water and that's often our springs which have you know are fed by these underground um underground fresh water and the water temperature stays at a consistent 72 uh, degrees year round so places along the nature coast uh, crystal river is is one for example you know we'll have hundreds of manatees that congregate in in the winter months and come to these places to seek these warm water refugees. Um, So the manatees, people are certainly concerned about manatees. There's questions about whether they need to be uplisted on the Endangered Species Act again, whether agencies will have to um, physically feed manatees to help them get through um, this winter Places that rehabilitate manatees, like the um, Zoo Tampa at Lawry Park or some of the aquariums, they're at capacity. And so, if there's if there's manatees that need time, they need nourishment and rehabilitation. Some of these places, you know, can't take any more animals. Um, so there is concern, but what we we have to hold our our lawmakers in particular uh, accountable and make sure that we're focusing on preventing these types of disasters from happening in the first place. And that's getting really tough with our water quality and being very proactive with cleaning up our, um, our water, whether it's upgrading our infrastructure or enacting fertilizer ordinances for making sure that, that septic systems are properly inspected and we're trying to get people off of septic and, and switch to um, centralized sewer when it's available. Um, but there's a lot of pushback from industry and from special interests, from developers, from, from people who benefit financially from having more lax um, regulatory standards. And so, while everyone wants to help the manatees, um, will you know, kind of the proof is in the pudding? Will we, will we take those steps to enact stronger pollution standards and and hold people accountable? So that's that's what I'm hoping to see, um, and and you know, that's part of what I do professionally is work on policies to protect our water and our land.
0: I think it's so interesting. I feel like there's been a change in thinking um, recently when it comes to what is considered a climate solution and the way that you described this issue and how How like this is systems thinking. It's right. It's it's like starting with this one issue, uh, and then following it all the way to the end, and seeing um, how it's connected to climate change uh, and uh, as you mentioned, like economic. Um, communities that really mm-hmm. rely on these resources. And so I feel like when we're talking about legislation in particular, there's been a change in what we're considering to be a climate solution to be uh-huh. much broader in scope. And I see that at the federal level in um, like the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was recently mm-hmm. signed or the Build Back Better Act that is still yeah. going yeah. through the House um, where where we're we're starting further up the system's line and thinking about what is a climate solution. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious in your experience, um, in Florida state government, if you've seen that change as well, and if you think that will have an impact on some of the, um, attitudes or industry attitudes around, or if it just helps frame the conversation a little bit more effectively.
2: Yeah. Great, great question. Um, Last year, our the Florida state legislature established a, a new program focused on resiliency, um, a grant program for cities and, and counties, local municipalities um, to develop resiliency plans or to implement projects that, that make our state more resilient. And resiliency encompasses so many different things. So some of the ecosystems that I've talked about, mangroves and seagrasses in particular, these coastal or submerged wetlands, they're part of the resiliency solution. Um, They have physical uh, protection of our lands. Mangroves, for example, if you have a large intact mangrove system um, and you have a a storm or a hurricane that comes through, that's your first line of, of defense against that storm or that hurricane is the the physical structure of those mangroves Um, when we had some of the um typhoons back in you know a, a decade or more ago there was a place in indonesia that was that came out of this huge typhoon unscathed and it was due to the intact mangroves that they had so We need to be protecting all of these coastal wetlands. Um, Seagrasses are just phenomenal um, superstars when it comes to climate because they're actually able to store carbon, to take carbon from the atmosphere that gets incorporated into the water column, and they store it in their biomass and in the sediments. So having seagrass, you're actually reducing the amount of carbon. In the air, we know that that pine trees and rainforests, for example, that they do the same thing. That there, um, there's areas where we have carbon sinks, whether it's wetlands or or timber or rainforest, and seagrasses actually store more carbon than some of these terrestrial habitats. And Mm -hmm. so, when we're losing seagrass, we're not only losing some of the water quality benefits in the habitat, but we're losing that resiliency, that that climate um, storage component as well. So our resiliency focus has to include protecting the existing habitats that we have, restoring them when we're able to, looking at things like living shorelines, where we may be putting in oyster reefs and bars um, that provide some of that physical barrier again, but um, oysters and clams can actually store carbon as well. So you're getting these multiple benefits. So if we focus only on, you know, building roads and bridges higher and constructing taller seawalls, then we're really missing the whole point because we're just continuing um, exacerbating the problem by putting all of our focus on this, this built infrastructure, this gray infrastructure, where we need to be looking at the benefits of the green infrastructure, our habitats, making sure that our water quality is good enough so that these habitats can can weather um, different natural disasters that we see. And so that all has to be part of the solution.
0: Uh, Becca, do you have any questions?
1: No, I'm learning so much. Like the fact that you just said, clan store carbon i would have never (laughs) so interesting um issues in idaho and we're such a dry climate but thinking about like actually living creatures underwater storing carbon is so cool to
2: me well yeah they they have these these shells and they that's that's part of the Mm. um their physical shell
0: That's fascinating yeah
2: yeah so we're we're actually working with um of a Senator on a bill that would look at the value that some of these industries, aquaculture and timber, um, some of the values that they provide to our ecosystem through climate resilience and storage of water and cleaning of water and looking at a cost share program so that we can um, you know, help support some of these industries because we're developing so rapidly in Florida, um, we know that when we lose citrus and we lose cattle ranching, it's often to a subdivision or a new development. And so rooftops become the final crop in Florida. And so anything that we can do to maintain productive aquaculture and, and agriculture that supports all of us. Um, is I think is an exciting way to um, keep some of these industries going and provide the services that you know, only these natural areas can do.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting um, and a, a really creative solution.
2: Yeah, I think we need to be looking at these ways that we're um, bringing the ecology and the economy together and showing the, the benefits of protecting areas.
0: Uh, I'm, this seems like a, a good place to take a quick break uh, to hear from some of our uh, favorite partners, including the NWF Outdoors podcast. We will be right back. Howdy Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. For more than a hundred years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. And for the next century, South Dakota's focused on making pheasant hunting even greater. Welcoming more hunters to the field, showing the hunting community is for everyone. That's a legacy to stay in the test of time. Go to HuntTheGreatestSD.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's HuntTheGreatestSD.com. South Dakota, sportswomen welcome. All right, welcome back. Um, so Lindsay, I have so many questions for you, but uh, I'm gonna narrow my curiosity to a couple of different avenues. One is that um, I'm curious about, um, again, focusing in on sort of on legislation and some of the work that you're doing um, in government. I would love to hear what you think the next important thing to address legislatively is. Ended like that. Question was going to continue, and it wasn't. That was a full stop, right there.
2: <laughs> so I focus on on my favorite things, which is water and land, and funding for land protection could never be more important than it is today. Um, Florida has been a leader nationally in developing some really strong conservation programs. And we used to invest $300 million each year to protect some of the most special and beautiful places, whether that's for um, really for biodiversity and for wildlife, or if it's to create more parks and places for people to get out and hunt and fish and and hike and bike. Um, But in, in recent years, the amount of money for these critical conservation programs has decreased dramatically. Um, we had a recession back in 2008 and the Florida state government, like many, um, really tightened down on things. Um, and unfortunately our conservation land buying program, um, the Florida forever program, for example, uh, that budget budget went away. It was completely zeroed out and yeah. And, you know, we had been, you know, $300 million a year that sounds like a lot of money but our state budget now is 90 billion dollars or more so even back in the you know 90s and early 2000s that's a, a relatively small part of the overall budget when you think of the number of people that's serving whether it's our residents or the people that come to florida to visit so since that 2008 period We had many years where we had no money allocated to these programs. Um, People in Florida were, were demanding that, you know, once our economy started getting back on track, we had more people moving here again. Those programs did not see the uptick in funding that other programs did. And their legislators refused to address it. So the people of Florida took it upon themselves to put it on, um, up for a vote um, during one of our one of our elections and it was actually a constitutional amendment that passed by seventy five percent, which nice. dedicated which set up a um, an annual fund through something called documentary stamp taxes. So when you sell a piece of property, there's a tax or a fee associated with it and part of that money, Statutorily now goes towards protecting water and land. At least that's how it's designed to, to happen. But our legislators have never fully funded that program, even though the overwhelming majority of Floridians said, We want this money to go towards protecting water and land. So every year we have to fight to get even small amounts of money allocated to these programs. Um, if we get $100 million, that can be a victory, but it's still a third of where we used to be historically. And so there's so many places that we, you know, if we want to provide areas that are close to where people live, you know, in the Tampa Bay area or Orlando or Miami, you know, it's important for those people to have a little neighborhood park or preserve to go to as much it is for people who maybe have more of a rural lifestyle. Um, We know that people care about things that they've been exposed to and they don't take action on things until they feel an emotional connection. So if you want people to care about water and wildlife and natural areas, you have to get them out into those places. And so I work every year to try and get the funding that these programs deserve whether it's um, to protect um, large cattle ranches, which are important for habitat like the Florida panther and the Florida black bear that needs significant areas to roam, to find food and to find mates. Um, The Florida panther, a male Florida panther needs about 200 square miles um, Mm. each for their habitat range. So you've got to have these large landscapes, but Many of them are are bisected with roads and highways, which are one of the leading causes of mortality for some of these animals. And if we want to protect these areas, if we want to have enough clean water and places for people to get outside, then we need to make the investments in these conservation programs. So that is that's something that I'm always going to be fighting for, um, making sure that we have places we, we can enjoy the natural beauty of this state and and share it with others.
0: I think it's really important to think about uh, what you just mentioned, right? Like uh, Florida has this um, highly popular program to increase conservation funding, and yet it's not being enacted as it was intended to. And I see examples of that all over. There was uh, an initiative on the ballot here in Montana that was similar um, in structure where the goal was that money raised in this particular way would would be used towards conservation in Montana and it passed overwhelmingly but then once the money hit uh, because you can't vote on budget uh, as a constituency right like that is something that's dealt with legislative so once it got into our house of representatives and our senate there was a big discussion about what this money would actually be used for and that was a whole process to make sure that it it went towards the conservation issues that it was intended to. And you see that again at the federal level with the Lane and Water Conservation Fund, which recently it was, you know, fully funded. Uh, But up until this last year, 2019, I can't remember time anymore. It was Uh, 2019. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of really important conversation about how we can fund these conservation initiatives more effectively uh, and at a higher level as is necessary for in order for the needs to be met, but it is just, you know, like, just as equally important to make sure that the initiatives that are in place are as effective as they can be and are in our, um, being used as intended.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the
2: accountability for, for lawmakers, when, when the people say time and time again, this is important to us, we, you know, we're trusting you to do these things that, that we value, and then they do the opposite of it. It's, you know, it's very disingenuous. Uh,
0: So I, I want to talk specifically a little bit more explicitly uh, about the fact that you are running for office in Florida. Tell us about that (laughs) process.
2: I am. So I'm running for the Florida state house of representatives to um, represent people in the St. Petersburg area and Pinellas County. Where I've lived uh, for seventeen years, um, been in the Tampa Bay area for twenty, um, and I think it's important that we have people in the legislature that have a scientific background and an understanding of some of these critical issues that are facing our state, our quality of life that impact our economy. Um, you know when we think of of representation, um, I think having scientists is an area where, where we're lacking, we're lacking that leadership and that understanding. And so that's one of the motivating factors for me is to share the knowledge that I have. Um, I've been part of some, some really phenomenal success stories. Um, I've spent 14 years working uh, to improve water quality and restore habitats in the Tampa Bay area. And the Tampa Bay has been a international success story of turning around an ecosystem which was, you know, considered almost dead because the water quality was so poor. And through investments in infrastructure and working cooperatively with business interests, with agriculture, with power companies, and uh, with universities, we were able to reduce pollution into the bay, um, restore seagrass, have more fish, have more wildlife, have more birds, um, make it so that Tampa Bay is truly an economic driver in our region. And so that's the type of thing that we can do statewide, but we need people who want to work collaboratively and can bring some of those real life examples um, to help model that and broaden it so that we're having these benefits um, not just in, in a few places, but around our entire state.
0: I think focusing on on success examples like that of large-scale ecosystem restoration is so important because there are times when projects like that can feel so insurmountable. And so having um, real-life models of success uh, can, can remind us of hope. And possibility yeah. and accomplishments,
2: we we certainly need that. Yeah. yeah, and and these things don't happen overnight, and so you need people who are committed, and you need to have partnerships and alliances that are going to last for for years, for decades to come.
0: Yeah, uh, one of the things that Artemis does uh, in addition to engaging women in conservation is uh, is Sort of redefining and discussing some of the barriers uh, for women specifically to leadership roles. and <clears throat> I'm curious what your personal journey and in, in, in determining that leadership was something you were willing to take on was like
2: one one way that I've been fortunate is that I've had some really phenomenal female bosses. Um, my executive director at the Tampa Bay Estuary program for the last several years that I was there is a woman named Holly Greening, and she's a biologist. I have just the utmost respect for her, um, the way she was able to lead our organization and to be, um, you know, help to be a unifying voice and bring partners together. Um, so I had models of of strong women. Um my mom is a was a teacher. She still tutors kids. Um so my mom was really innovative in the type of programming and um education she would bring to her students. You know, I also had great a great boss uh, my first job working at a a small land trust in Iowa. And so I, I think it's important to have female role models. Um, I spend a lot of time with women. I actually work for um, a travel organization that leads outdoor adventure travel for women. So it's just it's just part of something something that I love. So I think I was fortunate in that regard to to have some strong female role models who mentored me and encouraged me. Um, but it's it's not an easy undertaking to run for office. Um, one of the most difficult things is is raising money. There's mm-hmm. a lot of money in politics, and it's something that I dislike and I know you know everyone would like to get away from. but you know it is it costs a considerable amount of money to run a campaign, even if it's a local school board race, for example. So there's, there's some thing about it that can be a little bit of intimidating, um, you know, calling all of your friends and family and asking for money or picking up the phone and asking, asking strangers for money. But when you believe in what you're doing, like I do, and you believe in yourself, then it makes all those things easier. And you know that it's going towards, you know, a bigger goal and just serving a larger community. Yeah.
0: It's so interesting because I do think you're right in that fundraising and the act of campaigning is probably one of the biggest barriers because I think the act of leading and the act of participating in that process is uh, in in some weird ways the less intimidating aspect of running for office um, and the campaigning and the fundraising and asking people to believe in you as much as – as much as you believe in yourself is a difficult thing to do.
2: Mm -hmm. It can be. And there's, you know, when you put yourself out in the public eye, you open yourself up to, to criticism, to scrutiny and that can be really challenging. You know, the, (laughs) I think women have, you know, additional scrutiny that, that maybe some of our male colleagues don't have to experience and, so you have to you have to have thick skin. You have to have people that you can trust and that you can go back to to help you know fill your cup. Um, for me, it's spending time in, in nature. That's one of the ways that I recharge myself. And and I know that I have to keep up some of those health and wellness practices uh, because it is challenging when you know, you get a message or someone comments on a, on a post that you make, and it can feel very personal. Um, but keeping it in perspective that, you know, you're here to, to serve a, a, a bigger, bigger purpose and, and a higher calling. I think you have to keep that at the forefront. Yeah.
0: Lindsay, thank you so much. I know that we only uh touched the very tip of the iceberg when it comes to conservation <laughs> issues in Florida um and restoration projects that are happening right now, but uh you did a beautiful job helping us understand it um and and um and the full complexity of it so thank you so much Oh, you're so welcome uh, i love I love talking about these things. I hope
2: you can tell that
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely I feel uh, like I learned so much about Florida. so thank you I've actually never uh, been well so oh, really? i hope it,
2: I hope it makes you want to come visit. I have a guest room that you can stay in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Careful what you just offered there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I used to vacation in Florida a lot as a child. And I think it, I think it is something with Michigan um, where, you know, we, we enjoy our, our woods and our lakes and, and then once a year, almost for a good, decade of my childhood, we would hop in the car and drive all night straight through from Michigan uh-huh. to Florida um, and enjoy the beaches and it's yeah there if you can mesh yourself in the natural beauty of Florida, it really is amazing.
2: Yeah, so anyone thinking of a of a vacation to Florida, I would encourage you to spend some time at the beach but challenge yourself to go see some of these other beautiful ecosystems too. Yeah.
0: Before we head out, is there anything else you want to be sure to mention that we haven't covered already?
2: I think just the importance of, of electing people who are going to look out for our water and our natural areas is critical. Um, You know, working within your community to make sure people get outside and have safe access to nature. Uh, There's groups like the Trust for Public Land that does a phenomenal job of working with local communities to get ballot initiatives, uh, to create conservation funding programs and to create more parks close to where people live. Um, That's an organization I think is doing a great job. So I think just getting people out in the community, out in nature, uh, the more people care about it, the, the more we'll see transformational change in this area.
0: One of my favorite quotes that I know I've mentioned before is a David Sobel quote about uh, place-based education. And it's, um, you have to teach somebody to love something before you can ask them to save it. And I think there's so much truth in that. That's where uh, we have to start. That's Absolutely. So
2: get outside and, and bring
1: someone along with
0: you. Becca, any last questions?
1: Um, just one. I have a quick, easy question for you, Lindsay. What is your favorite native Florida wildlife species. Ooh. Well, the
2: Florida scrub jay is endemic, which means it's only found in Florida and they're very charismatic little birds. Sometimes you can get them to um, you know, sit on your shoulder or, you know, be curious. So the Florida scrub jay is pretty cool, but there's I don't think there's anything as special as seeing a manatee up close and, you know, hearing, hearing them exhale through their, their little snout and Mm -hmm. their like sweet little whiskered face, you know, manatees definitely have a spot in my heart.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. And then our last question as someone who works in, conservation every day and faces the effects of climate change head on. What gives you hope?
2: The, the young people, it makes me feel old when I say that, but, (laughs) um, you know, the, the youth right now are so much more plugged into the importance of our climate and taking action on climate. And so that gives me hope.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you so much. This was Wonderful. I, I appreciate your time and your expertise and your ability to string together words in a very beautiful way. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Becca, it was great catching up with you.
1: You too, Marcia. And Lindsay, it was great to, to hear you talk about the place that you love.
2: Well, thank you. I was, you know, you had asked about the Everglades and, you know, that's such a special area, but I just haven't spent as much time there. And I thought, you know, and Island really is like that's that's my local Everglades in a way. So that's my special yeah. place.
0: And I think we're always, like you mentioned, the the places that mean the most to us are the ones that I think that, that the depth of that connection and the depth of that love really comes through. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, that was uh, your connection to that place was obvious and just the way that you talk about it. Yeah,
2: good. Makes me want to uh, go get out there and put my paddleboard on my
0: car right now. <laughs> it's Friday. <laughs> I mean, it's I know. I know. Uh, to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. If this podcast has meant something to you, please consider leaving us a review or forwarding it to a friend. Those things really do matter in helping us build our community um, and keeping this podcast on the air. And then don't forget to head on over to the Artemis website, artemis.nwf.org, and check out the Hunters and Anglers Guide to Climate Change. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, Florida and many of the ecosystems uh, in within Florida. Uh, are brought to the surface within that report and we talk a little bit more about some of the great large-scale ecosystem restoration projects that are happening right now in Florida Uh, so check it out thanks for joining us on the thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast until next time be bold stay curious and get outside